This is Zion Hebrew Congregation with me, Luke Tanner. This week's Shabbat message is by myself entitled Principled. It is from Psalm 119. And if you want to hear any of our other Shabbat messages, you can check them all out on our website, zionhebraiccongregation.com. While you're there, if you want to receive my dad's weekly essays, you can sign up with your email to get those sent to you each week. And as always, our theme music is by my buddy, Evan Shaw. His website is evanshawmusic.com. Enjoy. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does lie only away. For soon is the day when we see your face. All right, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. So today, if you want to turn to a Psalm one nineteen, we're gonna be, we're gonna read a bit of Psalm nineteen, not the whole thing. What did I say? One nineteen. One nineteen. Uh. Uh, we're gonna read some Psalm one nineteen. We're gonna, I'm gonna read a little bit out of a book. Two books, actually. Um, and what I wanted to talk about primarily is some conceptual things that have kind of hit me lately in relation to culture, I guess, and our culture, biblical culture, culture of America, the world, and how the world's culture is very much uh, becoming homogenized. When I say homogenizing, it means to break everything down and mix it all together. That's what happens with milk. When they homogenize it, they actually break up the protein molecules so that the fat doesn't separate. It mixes all in with the milk. And so our culture is very much becoming that because as we're going to read in one of these books, cultural goods consist of words, images, and sounds. And they're the building blocks of what societies are built upon. And they have been turned into commodities and uh, consumer goods that are used as tools of manipulation to control and sway people and cultures. And so in today's days and age, we live as far as possible in time and in culture from where God intended things to be, which was in the garden. He, he, he set up utopia. He set up the garden. He set up the beginning perfect where everything we needed was right there. And we were supposed to eat from that tree of life. Instead, we ate from the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, which was a mixing of words. It was a homogenizing of uh, the intentions of what God has entailed. And so, which leads us all the way to today's day and age where we're bombarded from every aspect with words, images, and sounds that have an influence on us. And as my mind is being transformed and 
I'm learning more to, to step back and, and take a, a somewhat more disassociated view of my life and the world and culture and what I put my time into and how I think and what we interact with and the influence that it has upon us in our communities and our lives. What's interesting is as this Babylon system of culture is, is more mixed, it, it, it at the same time has a separating effect on people because it pushes us to, or gives us, should I say, whatever we want. And so it fragments and segments us and gives us our, the, our little, our desires of whatever our flesh wants. And so, and then we hold on to that and we can't be swayed very easily. But what we're supposed to be are people of the garden, people of God's word, and people of his principles. And so that's the first thing I wanted to talk about was, and we're going to get to it in this commentary by Hirsch uh, that I'm going to read some of, but People of principle, the word principle, it comes from the Latin, which means beginning. And so, which takes us all the way back to the garden. And so, if you were principled people, or people of principles who live according to one guiding principle in our lives, it is that genesis of a thought, an idea, and a, and a principle that directs everything in which we do. And that needs to come from God's word. And, and I'm afraid because it's in my own life, we're, we're acting on a myriad of, of principles that influence us from cultural goods that form the building blocks of society. So I think we have to continually try to be defined as people of the book, who, you know, principled people, so that we can be lights in this world and not be cogs in the worldwide machine dictated by the controls of corporate fingers, which is basically what we are. And I'm going to read some quotes that are written by people who are unsaved, not believers. They got them even in Isaac and Jacob in the Bible, but they can see from outside this viewpoint of understanding that, you know, we're under manipulation and so if we can't understand that, we need to, and, I, and, I, and this isn't a message about these are the 10 steps you need to take. I think it's a way bigger issue than take these 10 steps, you know, whatever, smash your TV or something or get rid of your cell phone. We need to just first understand where we even are because I know for myself, it's like I didn't even realize the quandary of mindset and culture that I'm in because I have been raised in American Babylon culture. And so then we try to overlay that on, on our understanding of everything. Whereas the Bible needs to be the principles, the genesis from which we, we emanate what we do and how we live and how we filter things. And, 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 and we can only do that if we know it. So this is what we're going to read in Hirsch's commentary. It's the first thing that needs to happen. So, let's go to Psalm 119. We're going to read a bit. I'm going to talk a little bit, hopefully not too much, about what we read. 
because I want to kind of let it speak for itself, and then I want to get into some of these uh, passages, some of these books here. All right, Psalm 118, verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the Torah of Yehovah. I just love that. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. Like God's word is a way. It is a path. It is a lifestyle that we're supposed to walk through and we're supposed to be undefiled in it. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. So we're supposed to walk, keep, and seek. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. So there's a diligence, there's a discipline there. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. I love that he throws in there because he understands that even with his best intentions, he's not perfectly doing it. And he's crying out to God to help him and lead him. Six, then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. I like that too because to me it talks about if there's a unity with your will and your actions and the word of God, you're not ashamed. If there's disunity between one of those three things, there's there should be a shame that creeps in. A shame in your own heart and mind and a shame that the world looks upon you and sees fracturing between what you say and what you do and it's, it, it's a shameful thing. So, but, but he says, then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. So we need to have respect unto all God's commandments so we will not be ashamed. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learned thy righteous judgment. So to praise God with an upright heart, you have to have learned his righteous judgments. I will keep thy statutes. O forsake me not utterly. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereunto according to thy word. So it just assumes that our base nature is dirty, is, 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 is fractured, is a mess. And so we need to take heed according to God's word. And that means, 10, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. It's permeated the essence of his being. Blessed art thou, O Yahweh, teach me thy statutes. So he's asking God that he knows it's not an, just an intellectual pursuit. It has to be something that the Spirit of God does in you. 13. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of thy mouth. And so when it's in your heart, when it permeates you, you it, it, it will exude forth from you. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. Ugh, boy, I don't know that I do. <laughs> you know, where are we putting our efforts, you know? 15, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. So he has respect unto the ways of God. He looks at them as those things worthy of honor. And he spends time pondering them, meditating them, thinking on them, letting it permeate their life. And I think that's something that we... And we need to do as, as a community when we talk about things. And this is, you know, we have to be in the word of God ourselves so that's in it and we're thinking about it and we're mulling it over and we're chewing on it and God's working on us. And then we bring it up with, with our fellow man and, and, and believers. And, and then we can talk about these things because we as the body of God have to function together to produce life. 16. 
I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. That verse 16, that's kind of what got me on this whole spiel that you're listening to right now because, I don't know, that just struck me. I will delight myself in thy statutes. You know, I don't know. Oftentimes, I don't know that I delight myself in God's statutes, so to speak. I don't know. Maybe my perception or concept of that is a little skewed, but, you know, it is to be that thing that gives us joy so that we can walk through life in joy. He says, I will delight myself, meaning it's a pleasurable thing that we dedicate ourselves to, and and then we don't, we won't forget, you know, we won't leave it off. Because it's not a it's not a trivial thing. So kind of back to what I talked about being principled people and and culture and how it influences us and how so what I want to read in these books, they're not he's not ta- talking about the Bible per se, but he's talking about concepts of what influences us and what builds cultural cohesion. And how we as God's people need to start to formulate this understanding of cultural cohesion and those things that we bring into our lives, be it just as a matter of fact, because you're born and you live in America, because of convenience or out of desire for something, they all have an impact on what you do and how you think. And how that's how you, you, you act and what you believe. And so we have to be cognizant of all these things and careful of all these things. So, so we'll read, read a little bit of this here. So this book's by Nicholas Carr. It's actually from his blog. These are excerpts of um, blog posts. Oh, no, I wanted to go to this one first. I'm sorry. I'm going to this one first. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> All right. So this, so bear with it. It's a little bit, little not long, but not too long. So, okay. This book is called The Big Switch by Nicholas Carr. The Rewiring the World from Edison to Google. So it was written in 2008. The, he's talking about America. The nation's mass culture and sense of unity that it instilled in a motley population scattered across a vast land was not, in other words, the expression of an essential quality of the the American character. It was a byproduct of the economic and technological forces that swept the country at the start of the 19th century. The internet, and that's because as the Industrial Revolution steamed along, we, it started changing our life. And you had the, the beginnings of radio and television. And everybody tuned into those central cultural goods. And it unified everyone because there was singularity in voice, basically. Keep in mind Bible. Like, that's what we should have, right? The internet, which is becoming not just a universal computer, but also a universal medium unleashes a very different set of forces, and they promise to reshape America's culture once again. That's what we're seeing happening. There's a deconstruction. The major constraints on the supply of creative works, high costs, and narrow distribution channels are disappearing. 
because most common cultural goods consist of words, images, or sounds, which all can be expressed in digital form. They're becoming as cheap to reproduce and distribute as any other information product. Many of them are also becoming easier to create, thanks to the software and storage devices of the worldwide computer and inexpensive pro production tools like camcorders, microphones, digital cameras, and scanners. Tasks that once required a lot of money and training, from film developing to video editing to graphic design to sound mixing, can now be done by amateurs in their dens, offices, and showrooms. The proliferation of blogs, podcasts, video clips, and MP3s testifies to the new economics of culture creation. And all the new digital products, whether fashioned by professionals or amateurs, can find a place in the online marketplace. The virtual shelves of the internet can expand to accommodate everything. The shift from scarcity to abundance in media means that when it comes to deciding what to read, watch, listen to, we have far more choices than our parents or grandparents did. We're able to indulge our personal tastes as never before, to design and wrap ourselves in our own private cultures. Quote, once the most popular fair defined our culture, explains Chris Anderson, now a million niches define our culture, unquote. The vast array of choices is exciting, and by providing an alternative to the often bland product of the mass media, it seems liberating as well. It promises, as Anderson says, to free us from the tyranny of the lowest commonated denominator fair and establish in its place a world of infinite variety. Can you see the overlay between central communalized churches or synagogues in the first century with a unified message of voice, images, and sounds to now the proliferation of find your flavor of ministry? But while it's true that the reduction in production and distribu distribution costs is bringing us more many more options, it would be a mistake to leap to the conclusion that nothing will be sacrificed in the process. That's the point here. Don't just assume it's all good, that nothing's sacrificed. More choices doesn't necessarily, necessarily mean better choices. Many cultural goods remain, remain expensive to create or require the painstaking work of talented professionals. And it's worth considering how the changing economics of media will affect them, i.e. the man who spent his life work producing commentaries versus the dude that shoots off whatever run through his head on YouTube. They're not in the same category, and we need to understand that. Will these goods be able to find a large enough paying audience to underwrite their existence, or will they end up being crowded out of the marketplace by proliferation of free, easy, accessible products? Even though the internet can, in theory, accommodate a nearly infinite variety of information goods, that doesn't mean that the market will be able to support them all. Some of the most cherished creative works may not survive the transition to the web's teeming bazaar. So, do you understand cultural and cultural goods and how it has an effect on us? And when... And we can't just assume that nothing gets lost in the process. Okay. Now, this is uh, from his other, this is from a blog post, July 18th, 2012. The median is, medium is McLellan. McLellan was a writer in the 1960s about uh, technologically, technologi technology and 
media. Okay. <clears throat> so pay attention to this because don't assume I'm not don't assume that when I talk about mass media I mean just like CNN. I mean pretty much any online media including those who have ministries that make their living off of it when they don't have a physical community. I know I harp on this pretty harshly, but I don't care. <laughs> I think these people are dangerous, quite, uh, quite, to be perfectly honest. Not that they're all bad, but we're eating from the knowledge, tree the knowledge of good and evil. And it's, there's always a mixture. And quite honestly, I would say 95% of believers have not the discernment to be able to distinguish what is truth out there. Because, again, we live as far as ever from the garden and from what God meant to be right and to be truth and how to even understand concepts of rightness and truth in his word. And so we have to understand the effects upon us. And the, the pressure from the adversary is being pumped into and onto us harder than ever. And the beautiful thing is it's, he doesn't have to cram it down our throats like the ducks that get fed to get fat. He gives us what we want. Which is even, it's a genius. It's a genius. Now listen to this, okay? This is written in the 1960s. This is, uh, so, McLullen also saw with biting clarity how all mass media are fated to become tools of commercialism and consumerism and hence instruments of control. The more intimately we weave media into our lives, the more tightly we become locked in a corporate embrace. As he wrote in Understanding Media, quote, Once we have surrendered our senses and nervous systems to the private manipulation of those who would try to benefit by taking a lease on our eyes and ears and nerves, we don't really have any rights left. This is damning. I'll read it again. Once we have surrendered our senses and nervous systems to the private manipulation of those who would try to benefit by taking a lease on our eyes and ears and nerves, we don't really have any rights left. Unquote. Has a darker vision of modern media ever been expressed? <laughs> ah, I love it. Oh, it's so good. So my point in all of this is to say cultural goods define how we, how we act and what we do. And the internet was not started as a tool of liberation. It was designed as a tool. I don't, and this, is, um, this doesn't come from Luke as Christian biblical man. This is from unsaved technology writers as a tool of control and of influence. And they don't care that you or anybody or I can put stuff on it. They want that. YouTube was sold for whatever billions of dollars by not having to create a thing. Everybody else put it on there and they sold it. You do not see that we're cogs in the machine. I'm going to read a couple other quotes just because I'm on my soapbox right now. Oh, so we'll start with this one. Simple faith in progress is not a conviction belonging to strength but one belonging to acquiescence and hence 
to weakness. Uh, where's, the, where's the one? Yeah. Simple faith in progress is not a conviction belonging to strength, but one belonging to acquiescence and hence to weakness. Where's the Oh, this one. This one's good. Okay, this one's good. So this was written by a guy who was kind of a uh, philosophical writer in the late 1800s, right after the World's Fair when Edison debuted like the electric light bulb and it was like the, the, the World's Fair of, of light and electricity. And so it was a big deal, right? Well, tell me this wasn't prophetic. New communication systems would, quote, practically eliminate distances, unquote just as electric lights would abolish, quote, the alternation between day and night, unquote. Eventually, the, quote, human machine would be thoroughly understood and developed to its highest efficiency. And then all the human machines would join together and form an even greater machine. People would become cogs in a wonderful mechanism acting in the response to the will of a corporate mind as fingers move and write at the direction of the brain. We're there, people. We're there. And if we think that we are not influenced, we're just living in a fairy tale land. The, the, the separation between rights and not rights, like McClellan wrote in the 60s, when you have given over a lease on your senses and your sights and your eyes and your nerves, you're, you, you have basically given up your rights, which is just a shocking thing to even think. Like, we, what about, don't tread on my rights. It's like, we gave them a little long, away a long time ago. So what do we do? All right. <laughs> back over here. All right, back to Psalm 119. So this is, well, now we're gonna read from another old guy, from writer in the eight, late 1800s, which I've quoted before, Rabbi. Hirsch, Raphael Sampson Hirsch, uh, writing about in an introduction here. And he uses a lot of like Jew and lingo, but I'm going to kind of replace, and I don't think I'm losing the spirit of what I mean. I'm going to replace like Jew for believer in some of these things because the principles are still applicable. And what I want us to see is instead of being influenced by the cultural goods of world that we live in and we're basically cogs in a freaking machine, and we need to at least understand that. Like we need to start renewing our minds. So, all right, we'll go through this. All right. Talking about Psalm 119. The Psalm seems to be set down in the form of a diary of a Jewish youth or man, whether he, uh, wherein he has recorded the account of his struggle to acquire the proper understanding and to attain moral perfection. He's trying to renew his mind. He's trying to think differently be influenced by God. The fact that the verses are arranged in alphabetical order indicates that the purpose of Psalm 119 is to instruct, even as similar arrangements in other psalms mark them as being instructive and themed in content. All right, we're going to jump up a little bit here. The theme of this psalm is not to simply is not is not simply the struggle for proper insight and moral perfection in general terms. 
What we are given here is a glimpse into the inner life of one who endeavors to attain such understanding and moral perfection in accordance with the spirit of, he says, Judaism, but I'll say the Bible or whatever. In fact, the psalm declares that the understanding and fulfillment of the divine law is the supreme concern. One might say, indeed, the sole concern of the believer. This would embrace... This would embrace Jewish law with all of its components, the teachings that instruct and ennoble mind and spirit, the institutions ordained by God, symbolic of these teachings, the mandates to be executed with regard to the creatures entrusted to our care, the commandments which point out to us our station in life, the statutes which sanctify the central aspects of our lives by assigning them their proper bounds, ordinances governing our relationships within society. To the believer, the sum total of all these laws constitute the word of God, the pronouncement of God. But he feels this law is best defined by faith. For faith is the connection with God's, for, for the verb faith in connection with God's law denotes the concept of imparting explanation, expounding, and tradition, and hence is consistent with an endeavor directed not simply upon memorizing what has been declared to be the law, but upon the full and thorough understanding of this law. I just love how, can you see how it's a cultural conception, lifestyle, and thought process? That's, we're to have this, not being cogs in the human machine. The understanding and fulfillment of the divine laws are his delight. They constitute his yearning, his desire, his love, the most precious treasure in theme of all the theme of all his supplications, his sole purpose. To him, the giving of these laws is the most profound dis- demonstration of divine loving kindness. The laws is his counselor, which make him appear even wiser than others. There is his, con- his constant pursuit and diversion. They serve as his guiding light for all his conduct. All his spiritual growth and development are based upon them. All the experiences of his life serve to add to this un- his understanding of them. God's, God's laws serve to gladden him throughout his pilgrimage on earth. For this reason, he frequently refers to God's testimony with a slight change in inflection, from which in turn is derived. Thus he calls God's testimonies the ornament and the ennobling diadem of man. The believer avows it over and over again that it is his endeavor to keep these laws, that is, to keep them ever before him by studying them and conscientiously avoiding any violation of them. He bears them in his heart. He keeps vigilant watch that they should remain before him clearly and accurately, and that he should not forget any part of them. It is to the Lord who created him and showed him the path his destiny is to follow that the believer now turns beseeching him to endow him with the spiritual strength to study his laws. Indeed, he expects God to render him such assistance as will influence him, enlighten him, grant him insight and understanding in his studies. (laughs) Of course, his first endeavor is to impress upon his memory the wording, subject, and general content of the laws in such a manner that he may readily recount them. That's the first endeavor, to impress upon his memory the wording subject to general content of the law in such a manner that he may readily account them. However, in his eyes, this superficial general knowledge is only the first prerequisite. For, in addition, the believer must seek to attain wisdom. 
through insight into the more detailed precepts and, precepts and inferences for the fulfillment and into the reciprocal relationships. Indeed, it is only once he has attained such wisdom that he feels truly capable of keeping and fulfilling these laws. It is only through uh, uh, wisdom that he acquires the genuine knowledge of the law. Only wisdom can turn his existence into genuine life. But the acquisition of wisdom is still not his ultimate goal. What he seeks is an even more profound insight and understanding which will penetrate into the motives and purposes of all his legislation. To which statement he adds uh, some words in Hebrew, I don't know what they mean. Such speculation and attempts at inquiring into the motives behind these laws would be a presumptuous and dangerous undertaking for a person who does not cleave to God's commandments simply because they are his. All right, we're going to skip ahead here a little bit. The request of this psalm is for better understanding and insight, therefore bases itself upon an avowal of words, and is not based upon such insight and understanding, but should precede the latter and form the granite foundation for whatever investigations he might undertake. So it's supposed to be the, the foundation for whatever we think about and, and, and do. The sole reason why he seeks to inquire into the word of God is that to him, the divine commandments are indeed the law of the Lord. Hence, by inquiring into them, he seeks to investigate the trail of divine wisdom, even as the human mind endeavors to search into the marvels of nature and history for the demonstration of God's wisdom and almighty prayer power. He prays, open mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your Torah. Yet such maximum understanding still does not constitute the ultimate end in his search. To him... The happiness and meaning of life in everyday living in the uh, I'm sorry to him the happiness of life of the, uh, to him the happiness and meaning of life lie in everyday living in the fulfillment faithful fulfillment of God's laws only those who walk in the paths of God's law in moral integrity will steadily stride forward to happiness and prosperity the Lord has given his laws so that they should be fulfilled and it is only when all his ways are directed toward keeping these laws that the believer need not be ashamed to look upon them. We're almost done. I don't know. It keeps going. I won't keep reading it all. But do you understand what he's getting at there? The, these words are supposed to, first and foremost, we're supposed to know them. His first endeavor is to impress upon his memory the wording, subject, and general content such that he may readily recount them, right? So that takes some effort. It takes some time. It takes some diligence. And so we have to redefine all cultural cult, culture with God's cultural goods, his words, his sounds, so that we can start to transform our lives and our communities because we all talk about wanting a community and needing a community and the importance of it. But if we can't rally around God's word first and foremost and the local community and the, and the authority structure that God has set up, it's not going to happen because we're all running around with culture, a million niches of culture because we can find anything we want anymore. You didn't have access to much back in the day. Now, 
we can have any dark hole that we like to go down. So hopefully that all kind of came out somewhat coherently and made sense. But hopefully I can, you know, relay that, you know, true blessing lies in God's word and his culture. And this is going to be a process and a battle. My hope and my prayer is that if we can all start to do it a little bit more, a little bit more, just realize even where we are. Uh, my name's Luke and I'm a product of living in America, you know. That's where it all has to begin. And then we can start to deconstruct what we are and be built back up according to God's word. So let's pray. Heavenly Father God, I thank you for your word, for this day, for the truth of it, for all that you uh, give us and provide us. And for Shabbat, this time to be together. Help us to be transformed by the renewing of the mind, our mind and the washing of the water of your word and the drink from that pure source that gives everlasting life wisdom and knowledge and blessing and peace and prosperity, God, defined according to your word. So thank you for your son, Yeshua, who came, took the penalty of death from us that we can live in newness of life and serve you, Father. Pray all these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Hey, mighty warriors around.